Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul has been confronting the bad theology, the bad teachings of the groups known as the Judaizers. Paul was teaching the true gospel that we are saved through what Jesus has done for us in living, dying, and being raised from the dead in our place. The Judaizers were a group of Jews who were teaching that in order to be saved, you also had to live under the law. This is the Jesus and gospel. You need Jesus and the law, that set of Old Testament rules and regulations that were given to Moses by God. And the Judaizers would say, you know, if you're a man, you need to undergo the rite of circumcision in order to be saved. And it sounded spiritual. It appealed to that part of us that wants to feel a little bit more superior and a little bit more serious than other people about our spirituality. It resonates with that desire that we all have to feel like we have somehow earned or deserve our place in heaven. And when we left off last week, Paul was talking about the Judaizers' main man, Abraham. The Jews considered Abraham, and still do, to be the father of their faith, and Paul had just finished using the scriptures to show that Abraham himself had been saved and declared righteous by God when Abraham was still a Gentile. So Abraham was saved as a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew, and he didn't have to become a Jew in order to be saved. The shocking reality was that the sons and daughters of Abraham, Paul pointed out, are those who, like Abraham, place their faith in God. The sons and daughters of Abraham are not those who are his ethnic sons and daughters. They are those who share the same faith that he does in the living God. Now, the Judaizers would have likely anticipated this argument from Paul, and they probably would have gone on to say, you know, that's true, Brother Paul, but 645 years after Abraham died, God gave us the law. And from that point on, the law became the way that you must be saved. And in today's text, Paul's going to have a few things to say about that. Let's take a look at Galatians 3 verse 10. Paul says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. If you're trying to live by the law, if you're trying to earn your way to heaven by being a good person, then the Bible says you're cursed. If you're a Christian who is living as though you are saved by your works, you've gone back to living by the law, then your Christian experience is going to be cursed. Why? Because quoting from the law, from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Paul goes on and says, for it is written, and then underline this quote here. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, cursed is the man, cursed is the woman who tries to live by the law and does not do everything in the law perfectly. The law is a curse because it's an absolute standard. It's an all or nothing standard. The law is not a sliding scale. It's not a system where you get to heaven if you beat the curve. You're above average or in a top certain percentage better than most. To earn your salvation under the law, you have to follow all of the law. Keep every law perfectly, without fail, 
for your whole life. Otherwise, you fail. You're cursed, you're doomed, and you're damned. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Imagine everyone in Vancouver going down to the beach, and there we meet God. He's standing on the seashore, and he says, guys, listen, I figured out a way to make sure that only the most deserving people get to heaven. So anyone who can swim to Hawaii is going to make it into heaven. And so everyone gets in the water. You and I get in the water. We start swimming. And as you look around, you might see people dropping off. I mean, they're, they're giving up. They're floating starfish. There's people drowning. And you might think, man, I am doing so much better than all these people. Look at these losers. It's incredible how much better I am at this than they are. Are you actually doing any better than them? No. Why? Because even though you might make it a few miles further than some people, nobody is making it to Hawaii, right? Nobody is making it to Hawaii. And the person who thinks that they're going to make it to heaven because they're a better person than other people thinks they're doing well because they've managed to swim three miles to Hawaii. The law is an all or nothing proposition because the law does not compare us to one another. It's not that you die and then God says, okay, if you can point out 10 people in your life who weren't as good as you, then I'll let you in. We're not compared to each other. The law compares us to God. The standard is perfection. This is why, make a note of this, living by the law inevitably curses your life because it is an impossible standard. It is an impossible standard. That's why Paul says in verse 11, but that no one is justified, no one is declared righteous by the law in the sight of God is evident. It's obvious. For, and then underline this, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Paul is quoting one of the most important theological verses in the entire Bible. It's found in the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4 to be precise. It's the verse that became the masthead of the Reformation because this is the verse that shook Martin Luther's life to the core. If you haven't seen the 2003 movie about his life called Luther, I'd highly recommend it, it's phenomenal. He was born the son of a poor coal miner in Saxony, Germany in 1483, and he grew up observing the poverty of his father. And so he resolved to be different, and he set out on the path to become a lawyer. In 1501, he entered the University of Erfurt, and in 1504, near the end of his studies, he was caught in a lightning storm that was so terrifying, so severe, he rashly prayed and promised God that he would become a monk if he lived through this storm. And he did. And he kept his word. He withdrew from law school and in 1505 he entered St. Augustine's monastery where he obtained a doctorate in theology and became obsessed 
with how man can find favor with God, how man can get on God's good side, how man can be blessed by God. And so he would whip himself until he bled. He would crawl for miles on his knees, spend hours in prayer, sleep outside almost naked in freezing conditions with no blanket, fast for weeks at a time, make distant pilgrimages to supposedly sacred sites, make frequent confessions, all in an attempt to show his devotion, atone for his sins, and earn God's blessings by showing God how serious he was about his faith. In fact, Luther went to confession so often that the abbot finally said to him, either commit a sin worth confessing or stop bothering me. But nothing worked. Nothing worked. He later described this period in his life this way. He says, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made of him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. In 1509, he made a pilgrimage to Rome, hoping to find the peace that eluded him. He journeyed on foot, crossing the Alps, where he almost died from exposure. At the foot of the mountains, he came across a monastery where he stayed for a season as the monks nursed him back to health. And in that monastery, at the foot of the Alps, a wise monk conversed with him about his internal struggles, his existential angst, and the monk said, you might want to check out the book of Habakkuk. Go read it and see what the Lord says to you. Because Habakkuk struggled just like Luther did. They had the same issues. They both wrestled with why, if God is good, is there suffering? And why does God seem so distant? And why doesn't God just obliterate the evil that haunts the world, that haunts my life? And in Habakkuk, he found this phrase, this verse in Habakkuk 2.4 that seared itself into Luther's mind, the just shall live by faith. And he just couldn't get this out of his head. He finally made it to Rome and, and he began to go through the rites that the Catholic Church and all the saints and all the, the faithful indulged in there in Rome. That verse kept haunting him, the just shall live by faith as he watched men climb the sacred steps and abuse their bodies and bleed on their knees as they did so, all in an attempt to supposedly reduce their time in purgatory. And in the middle of all that, Martin Luther walked away from the Catholic Church. He didn't have things figured out yet, but he knew for sure that was not the path that made sense. He returned to the University of Wittenberg and began diving into this idea of justification by faith eventually publishing a short commentary on the book of Galatians. And Luther saw it. He, the light bulb just went off and he suddenly saw the whole thing, the whole deal that the Christian's hope, the Christian's life is found in putting your faith in what Jesus has done, not what I do or don't do. It's not about anything that I've done. It's about what Jesus has done. And famously on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. You see, he was naive enough to believe that if the Catholic Church was just shown the error of their ways in Scripture, then they would repent and change their ways. They didn't. And they still haven't. 
They excommunicated Luther as a heretic and planned on killing him. Fortunately, God gave him enough favor with local princes and politicians that his life was spared. And what followed shortly, what was triggered by those 95 theses was the cultural and religious revolution known as the Reformation. And make no mistake about it, we would not be here opening the Word of God together, reading the Scriptures, had the Reformation not taken place. It was that important. Now, obviously, the Lord had all of that planned, but He chose to do it all around this one little verse from Habakkuk that was just picked up by Paul and echoed to the Galatians, the just shall live by faith. It's a verse that changed the church and indeed the world. And Luther would go on to write hymns, including A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He would write multiple commentaries that are still considered classic, and he would translate the entire Bible into German as one of his side hobbies. Indeed, Luther did more, infinitely more for the Lord once he realized he was saved by faith than he ever did when he was trying to earn his salvation. Because that's how it always works. That is why James wrote that faith without works is dead. It's because real faith comes from a love for God and love makes us do far more than obligation or duty ever could. It's what we talked about in our last study. When you're under the law, you live for the law. The law is your master. When you're saved by faith in the grace of God, you live for God because He is your master. And there's just two little things about that Martin Luther story that are kind of unrelated to our study, but I just want to point them out because I love them so much. The first thing that hits me is the monk in the monastery at the foot of the Alps who's there just faithfully living out his life, serving the Lord in relative obscurity. We don't know his name. He's not famous or anything like that, but he's clearly a man of the word, enough a man of the word that he's familiar with the book of Habakkuk. How many of us are familiar with the book of Habakkuk? I won't ask you to raise your hands, okay? And this monk changed the world by being in the right place at the right time and commenting to Martin Luther you might want to check out the book of Habakkuk. And that little comment to a man who was just passing through his monastery and got sick while crossing the Alps changed the world, changed the whole world. You never know how the Lord is going to use you when you wake up every day with the goal of just being faithful to him wherever he's placed you that day. You have no idea what row of dominoes the Lord may have placed you in. No idea. And then secondly, I just love how a single verse from the scriptures can change a life. That's just what the word of God is like. When you get in the word, sooner or later, you will encounter a verse that will change your life. A light bulb will go on and you will get it. And the way you see the world, the way you perceive your life will just be changed in an instant. That's what the word of God can do. If you're in the word of God. So simple encouragement. Be in the Word. Be in the Word. You have no idea how God can change your life in an instant with one verse. We'll go on to verse 12. Paul says, yet the law is not of faith, but, quote, the man who does them shall live by them. Paul is quoting Leviticus 18, which is part of the law, part of the Torah as well. And Paul's point here is that the law and faith are mutually exclusive. It's one 
or the other, but you can't merge them together in any way. You can't come up with some sort of hybrid system of faith, but you also have to fulfill the law. They are complete opposites. God himself said of the law, if a man keeps this, then he'll be saved by this. But faith says, if you believe in what Jesus has done for you, you'll be saved. In one system, you have to be saved by the law. In the other, you're saved by faith. There's no way to come up with a system that includes them both in any way that makes sense. That's the point Paul is making. Now, as an aside for you students of the word, those of you who like following rabbit trails in the scripture, there's a good reason to believe that salvation under the law is no longer available as even an option. In other words, in this era, the New Testament era that the Galatians were in, even if one could live a perfect life, which one can't, that method of salvation is no longer available. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Big check mark, to complete it. Jesus fulfilled the legal requirements of the law. He completed the law. At the expense of his life, he created a way for all men to be saved by faith instead of by the law. To even try and attain salvation by works is not only futile because you can't do it, it is also a rejection of the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. My personal belief is that even the option of salvation by the law passed away when Jesus ushered in the age of grace, the new covenant, New Testament era that we live in right now. But you can dig into that for yourself if you're so inclined. Verse 13, underline this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I love that verse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is what's known as the divine exchange. Jesus taking all of our sin and giving us his righteousness by switching places with us. Do you remember the acrostic for the word grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Do you recall when Pilate presented Jesus and the criminal Barabbas to the Jewish people in Jerusalem around Passover and asked them which prisoner he should release. Do you remember how the crowd chanted free Barabbas and crucify him of Jesus? What Paul is telling us is that we were in Barabbas' shoes. Like Barabbas was guilty, we are guilty and we know it. Jesus was innocent. And because Jesus was condemned, we, like Barabbas, have been set free. Just as Barabbas traded places with Jesus, Jesus traded places with us. The law cursed us because we violated it. But Jesus took on our curse. The law was a blessing to Jesus because he fulfilled it perfectly. But Jesus gave that blessing to us. Jesus took our curse, he gave us his blessing. That's the divine exchange. Would you write this down? On the cross, Jesus, the rightly blessed one, switched places with us, the rightly cursed ones. The rightly blessed one switched places with us, the rightly cursed ones. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul puts it like this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Jesus didn't die to simply give us a fresh start, a second chance. He didn't die to wipe the slate clean so we could try again. He died to give us a new identity. He lived a full, perfect life in our place. He took care of the sins that we've committed, the sins we're committing, and the sins we will yet commit. We have the righteousness of God, not until we inevitably screw it up, but forever, forever. Jesus saved us, Jesus keeps us saved, and Jesus is the one who will finish the work that he started in each of us. Our hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. When Paul says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 21. And it's interesting because Jews then, and even now, would point to that part of the law and they would say, you see right here in the scriptures, it says that a crucified man would be cursed in the eyes of God. So it would be blasphemous to suggest that the Messiah would have died by crucifixion. The idea of the Messiah becoming cursed was and is inconceivable to the Jews. In the original languages used in both Deuteronomy and here in Galatians, the idea is not that the one who breaks the law is cursed by God. That's not the idea. The idea is that the one who breaks the law positions oneself in a place of cursing. You move yourself into a cursed position. You go there yourself. What is a curse? It's essentially a promise. It's a guarantee that your future is doomed. That's what a curse is. Jesus was not cursed by the Father. Jesus placed himself in our position. The place of the cursed ones willingly. Jesus went and stood in our place. He put himself there willingly. And in our desire to focus on the positive aspects of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, we must never forget that the gospel is only good news if you understand the position that you are in apart from Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, you have positioned yourself in the place of the cursed. That's where you've placed yourself. Your life is under the curse of eternal death and it is coming for you apart from Jesus. When you grasp that reality, it suddenly becomes very good news when you read, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And because Jesus became the curse of the law in our place, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So not only does Jesus take our place in the cursed position, but he swaps places with us and puts us in his position, where we are now destined to receive eternal life and blessings. 
And just to be clear, the blessings of Abraham that Paul refers to here has nothing to do with the national or ethnic blessings that God promised to Abraham. Those are a different deal. He's referring specifically to the promise that God made to Abraham of salvation and the Holy Spirit that would come through his line. So write this down. The blessing of Abraham is the promise of salvation and the Holy Spirit for all who believe. The promise of salvation in the Holy Spirit for all who believe. Then in verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. I'm going to speak in human terms here. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Paul says, listen, even when human men get together and confirm a covenant or make a contract, we all understand that that covenant is binding. It can't be revised or uh, something taken away from it or something added to it by one party without the consent of the other. He says, we all understand this. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He, that's God, does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. He's talking about Genesis 22, 18. I put it on your outlines. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham that Paul's talking about. God said to him, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, in the original Hebrew, the word seed there can be used two ways. It can be used in the singular sense or the collective singular sense. Collective singular would be a word like the word man, like man is cursed. The word man is singular, but it refers to all men when it's used in that context. And what Paul is saying is that in the instance of Genesis 22, 18, When you look at the totality of Scripture, God's full plan revealed in the Scriptures, it's clear that God there is using seed in the singular sense. In other words, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through one of Abraham's descendants. The Jews and the Judaizers were teaching that the word seed there was plural and referred to the Jewish people. Their belief was that God's blessing to all the nations of the earth was the Jews. So, in other words, yes, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because they're fortunate enough to live on the same planet as us, the Jews. That's basically what they were teaching and holding on to. Paul goes a step further and he connects the dots for his readers by revealing the obvious identity of the singular seed, writing, who is Christ, saying it's Jesus. Verse 17, and this I say, that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Here's Paul's point. He said, even human men understand how a covenant works. We understand that it's a binding agreement. God made a covenant promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth through one of his descendants, and that descendant was the Messiah, Jesus. When the law was given centuries after Abraham, Paul's point is this, the law didn't change anything about the promise that God had made to Abraham. He says the law cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. God's covenant with Abraham predates the law by over 600 years and is absolutely binding. The law being given doesn't change anything. That's Paul's point. 
Now just a note for you Bible nerds, I feel like I should say it to just make sense of this. When Paul says that the law came 430 years later, he's referring to the time between God's last statement about the promises he made to Abraham and the time the law was given to Moses. You see, God repeated the promises he made to Abraham, to Abraham's son Isaac, and then to Isaac's son Jacob. So what Paul is referencing here is he's referring the time period between when God last reiterated the promises, which was to Jacob, and the time the law was given. That time was 430 years. But the time period between God making the promise to Abraham and when the law was given was actually 645 years. Just to clear that up for you guys so you don't lose sleep tonight. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But underline this, God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul says, guys, God gave a promise to Abraham in the sense of one making a promise that one is going to give a gift. If I promise to give someone $100,000 and then tell them later that my plan to give them $100,000 is really for them to work for me for 10 years and then I'll give them $100,000, that's not a real promise, is it? Because we all understand the promise is implying that it is a gift. If the inheritance of salvation has to be earned by works, then it's not really an inheritance, is it? Because you're earning it yourself. But God promised Abraham an inheritance, meaning God would be the one to provide it. Not Abraham or man's works or keeping the law or anything else. To claim that God's covenant promise to Abraham changed when the law was given is to claim that men have covenants that are higher and more honorable than God does. It would mean that God had decided that we didn't actually need a savior and he's now going to award salvation based on merit instead of a promise. There's not really a way to disagree with Paul's logic. Furthermore, in the law itself, it is written, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent, that means change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Because God is perfect, he doesn't lie, he doesn't need to change his mind, and he always does what he said he would do. That's Paul's point here. The blessings of God, I love this, the blessings of God are apart from the law. If you can understand this, your walk with the Lord will be so different, it will be so free, because we always think, oh listen man, God's blessings aren't for me, at least not right now. I mean, I haven't been keeping the law. I haven't been praying a whole lot lately. I haven't been in the word enough. I've made a, I made a lot of mistakes recently. I've sinned a whole bunch, intentionally and unintentionally, so there's just no way that when God's looking at me, he's got a heart to bless me now, no way. But going all the way back to Abraham, we see this glorious truth, make a note of this, that the blessings of God are apart from the law. The blessings of God are apart from the law. This is what we're singing about when we sing like those songs that we used to sing in the 80s and 90s, God is good, when? All the time, all the time. Because the blessings of God are apart from the law. He doesn't give salvation based on merit and he doesn't bless based on merit. 
Paul's whole point is that either something comes by grace or it comes by works. Something either comes because of the giver's promise or because of the receiver's performance. It's one or the other. And praise God, our salvation is given to us as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. If I promise to give you $100,000, the only thing you would need to do is willingly receive it when I came to give it to you. So it is with salvation. Our only role is to willingly receive the grace that God is giving to us. And with all this talk about Abraham, it's worth revisiting what took place back in Genesis 15. If you were with us in our Genesis study, you'll remember this. If not, I'll fill you in. Abraham had received the promises of God like he did in 2218 of Genesis. He believed the promises of God, but there was still this little part of him that wondered, well, how do I know? How do I know that this is all going to happen for sure? It wasn't an offensive kind of doubt. It was just a natural thing of Abraham saying, okay, God, you're here promising this to me right now, but what if I don't hear from you for a while? Can I, can I have something to hold on to? And so God said, okay, Abraham, let's cut covenant together over all this stuff that I've promised you. Let's make a covenant. And you'll recall that Cutting covenant was a ritual method back then of making a binding agreement between two parties. You would take an animal or animals, you'd cut them in half, boom, and they'd separate the two halves far enough apart for the two parties to walk between them. And so in this instance, Abraham uses a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And yes, it was very, very graphic, but this was the way a contract was signed at that time and place in history plus huge bonus, nobody enjoys contract signing, so let's throw a barbecue in there and make the whole thing a little more fun. I kind of dig it. As we alluded, the two parties would walk between all the animals that had been cut in half as a way of saying, if either of us breaks this agreement, if I break this agreement, may I be cut up and cut off, because if I break this agreement, I will be deserving of the same death these animals suffered. You see, there was no Judge Judy to solve disputes back then. Things were a little more intense. But do you remember what was so significant about this covenant agreement between Abraham and God? Abraham didn't ever end up walking between the animals. He waits on the Lord for an extended time. God doesn't show up. And Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And when he wakes up, he sees the presence of God moving between the animals without him. And God reiterates, he repeats his promise to Abraham. And the whole point was this. Their covenant was going to be 100% dependent upon God. It was all about what God was promising to do for Abraham. Abraham wasn't part of the ceremony because Abraham didn't have any part to keep in the covenant. No task, no promise, no commitment, nothing. God was going to be the one to do it all. And our brother Paul reminds the Galatians and us that we are saved the same way completely by the grace and work of God. He does it all. He sustains it all. He's the one who will make sure it all comes to pass. Our only part is to believe it, receive it, and witness it. This reality is what Paul is writing about to Timothy when Paul tells Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
Martin Luther has Habakkuk 2.4. That verse, 2 Timothy 2.13, that's mine. That's my personal verse there. And I thought, you know, when I was younger, it's like, oh, what's, what's your life verse going to be? I thought it'd be like some, some amazing faith verse about doing great and amazing things for God and all that sort of stuff. This is the one. This is the one that means more to me than anything else because the longer you live, the closer you get to God, the more aware you become of your own sinfulness, right? The more aware you become of this enormous gap between the holiness of God and, and, and who you are. And when you grasp this verse that when he says God cannot deny himself, he's talking about the fact that as he says in other writings, we are in Christ. We are in Christ positionally. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. So for God to disown us or be faithless to us would be like him disowning himself or being faithless to himself. And I am so blessed every time I read that verse because it resonates with me that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And I can tell you from my life over and over and over again that is true. Even when I've been faithless, God has been faithful. That's the testimony. Jeff, is there, is there nothing I'm supposed to do? Is there no action I'm supposed to take? Well, there's one thing that Abraham does in this covenantal ritual. When he's waiting for God to show up and time is passing, he has to start chasing away the birds that start coming to peck at these delicious animals that are sitting right there and they're pecking away at the carcasses and we're called to do the same thing. Well, what do you mean? Well, when we're waiting on the promises of God, be it the grand promise of heaven and eternity or a promise related to life on this earth, when we're waiting for God to show up and do what he said he would do, for him to honor his word, there are going to be doubts and fears that are going to show up and they're going to peck away at those promises of God. And our one job, our one job is to say, get out of here. Kick those birds out of there. Shoo them away. I'm talking about the voice of our flesh, the voice of our adversary that shows up and says, God's not coming. Not this time. He's not going to come through. You know how you've been living recently. You know how little you've been in the Word. You should pack it in. Give it up. Just, just let this one go. It's not happening this time. You turn to God's Word. You hold on to His promises. You look back on your life and remember all the ways He's been faithful to you before. You kick those birds out of there. You get those doubts out of there. You don't speak doubt. You get rid of them while you wait on the Lord. You wait in faith like Abraham did for God to be God because God's goodness is not based on who we are. It's based on who he is. And his blessings are given apart from the law, apart from our performance. So you stay and you wait in the place of faith and you chase away every bit of doubt, every bit of questioning, you hold on in faith. And at this point in Paul's teaching, a logical question would be, well, then what is the purpose of the law? Well, why was it given? And what's it good for today? And we're going to dig into Paul's answers on that next week. I'll say this to close with us today. Here's what I want us to hold on to most from today's message. Everybody's life is either cursed or it's blessed. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, then your life is blessed. 
Your life is blessed. No matter what is happening in your life, you have a reason to praise. You have something to thank the Lord for because all you have to do is look back over to the place where you used to be, the place of those who are cursed, and then look where you are You're in the place of those who are blessed. Your whole world might be falling apart right now, but look where you are. Look where you're positioned. You are in Christ. You're in the place and position of blessing and eternal life. Your life is headed toward blessing, and no matter what, no matter what comes up to try and get in the way, no matter how hard you try to mess it up, you have an unavoidable appointment with the blessings of God. They're coming for you, no matter what. So when we worship and we pray in just a moment, when we take communion, praise God. Rejoice over that. Thank Him because you have a reason to be grateful this morning. You are in the place of blessing. Blessing is coming for you. It's guaranteed, not by me, but by the Lord. When it comes to our salvation, if you imagine a contract that stipulated our salvation, the only thing that would be on it are the things that God has done and the things that God will do. And then next to where we signed, it says only this, Would you like to receive all the benefits of this contract? You see, your salvation does not depend on anything you do. Your salvation does not depend on your ability to do certain things and to not do other things. That's what the thief crucified next to Jesus asked for. When he said to Jesus, and I'll paraphrase, I've got absolutely nothing to offer Jesus, but I would love it if you would save me and let me be with you forever. And how did Jesus respond? Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise, today. See, whether you've been a believer for five seconds, five weeks, five months, five years, or 50 years, your salvation still does not depend on you. It's the gift of God given to us through Jesus. And because of that, I can tell you that your salvation is secure. If it depended even a little bit on you, you would be screwed. So would I. But it doesn't. We didn't earn it by performance. We can't lose it by performance. Just as surely as we cannot keep the law, just as surely as we cannot keep the law, God will never fail to keep his promises. He will always do what he said he would do. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the comfort and the security and the promise of your word. Thank you that we don't have to live day to day wondering if we're good enough or if we're meeting the standard we need to be meeting or if we've somehow lost our salvation by slipping below a certain ranking. But Father, on the day we were saved, And on the day we go to be with you, and every day in between, we are saved the same way because of what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. He's our hope, and our hope is in your promise, God, that you've already come through on. You've already provided the way.
You've already provided your son as a sacrifice. You've already atoned through him for each of our sins. You've already given us the righteousness of Jesus. And so, Lord, we just marvel and we say thank you. And even though it's unbelievable because the news is so good, Lord, we receive and believe that truth that we have an unavoidable appointment with your blessings. And we thank you for that. No matter what is going on in our lives right now, we look at where we are and we see that we are in Christ. We're in the place of blessing. And so, Lord, we declare in faith and we declare with understanding we are a blessed people this evening. Completely apart from our circumstances, we are a blessed people. And that's all because of your kindness to us. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.